Riches gotten quickly will dwindle, but those who acquire them gradually become wealthy. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Money! Ba-dum, bum, 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 money! <clears throat> it's everyone's favorite thing to talk about in church, right? It's up there with partisan politics and human sexuality. It's, just, it's why we come to church on Sunday, to hear about one of those three things. You know, from my vantage point, I can tell that you all have been on the edge of your pews these last few weeks, eager like kids on Christmas morning, just to hear what I have to say about money and God and the Bible. Money! The American dream. Red, white, and blue. And so many of us came of age in a world and a culture that told us the American dream was possible. This dream, a desire for achieving material possessions, for having deeper bank accounts that would finally one day make us happy. You know, on any given day, we wake up. We have this dream in our minds. We seek out ways to make it a reality by pursuing more than we have, by gaining more than we have, by saving more than we have, and knowing Knowing how important money is in our larger culture, it is actually kind of strange that if you look at the American flag that's got 50 stars on it instead of $50 signs. Money is everything. Everything. It's why we wake up in the morning. It's what we use to buy our groceries. It's what we use to put gas in our car. It's what we think about before we go to sleep. It's what we think about when we wake up. Money is everything. It's how we judge people. And you know, we might like to think that we're like the Lord, that we care about the content of one's character, not about the clothes that the character wears. But most of us tend to measure our own worth and the worth of other people based on our material possessions or their material possessions. But, and this is a really big but, for many of us, the American dream, it actually feels more like the American nightmare. Today we're going to talk about Wesley's second command. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Today we're talking about saving all you can. But before we can get there, it might do us some good to figure out how we got here. There's a study last year that noted at least 80% of Americans are stressed about the economy and their personal finances. Eight out of every ten people. More than half of Americans are worried about being able to provide for their family's basic needs. Food, housing, medical expenses. 56% of Americans are concerned about their job security, and 52% of Americans report lying awake at night thinking about one thing and one thing only, money. Which those statistics probably aren't that surprising to us here, particularly knowing how much of the world revolves around economics, but maybe this statistic will frighten you just a little bit more. In the year 1990, do you know what the average credit card debt an American had? The average credit card debt an American had in the year 1990, you know what it was? $3,000. 30 years ago, the average American had $3,000 in credit card debt. Do you know what it is today? It's over $9,000. The average American today has over $9,000 in credit card debt. $9,000. The average salary in our country is $40,000. That means the average American is making $40,000 while they owe a quarter of their annual salary to their credit card company. And that doesn't include your mortgage. It doesn't include your medical debt. It doesn't include your student loans, unless you were crazy enough to use your credit card to pay for those things. $9,000. Now, maybe that doesn't scare you, but hopefully this will. If we have an average American here, which statistically we should, 
And one of those average Americans has the average credit card debt, $9,000. And if that average person only pays the minimum card payment, do you know how long it will pay, take to pay off your debt? 200 years. I'm glad you laughed, Charlie, but it's not funny. <laughs> I mean, think about that. If you are an average American and you're only paying your minimum payment, it's going to take you until the year 2,219 to pay off your credit card debt. That is absurd. The American dream is the American nightmare, and it is in full effect when we think about our finances. And so, so, so many of us are unwilling to delay gratification, and we're using tomorrow's money to finance today's lifestyle. Few of us, if any of us, save our money appropriately because we keep thinking that tomorrow won't come, but friends, it does. Again and again and again, money. Whether we like it or not, whether we are rich or poor, it is easily the thing that consumes our thoughts and our desires and our dreams more than anything else. Which leads us back to Wesley, why we're doing this thing this month. These theological ideas on the subject. Having first gained all you can, the next you need to save all you can. And it is a lot easier to say than it is to do, which in the church parlance is it's a lot easier to preach than it is to practice. I want to be clear, Jesus had a lot to say about money and a lot to say about saving money, and it's almost always negative. You know, it's not a really good thing if you're stockpiling your resources, at least according to the one we love and adore. You know, Jesus uses a parable about a man who has so much stuff that he has to tear down his barn to build an even bigger one to put more stuff inside of it. And he says, he is going to die because he has too much stuff. Jesus holds up this widow who gives her very last coin to the temple and says, she has faith. Jesus flips the tables over in the temple because they're lending money to people. They're changing money to make the exchange rate better. But for as much as Jesus spoke about the negative side of accumulating wealth, of keeping your own money, he often talked about other things like vineyards and planting and produce, all of which are long-term investments. You know, it takes years for certain seeds to grow to bear any fruit at all, and when they do bear fruit, sometimes it takes multiple iterations before the fruit even tastes good. The sower scatters seed on the ground, not knowing at all how long it will take for them to become something else. Jesus and John Wesley, they both called disciples of the Lord to be faithful stewards of the resources God has given them. And that is the, that's the whole thing right there. It's that God has given us these resources and is expecting us to be good stewards with them. In one of those volumes right there, you can read that Wesley once said, We are not at liberty to use what God has given us as we please, but only as God pleases. God is the sole possessor of heaven and earth and the Lord of everything. We have no right to dispose of anything we have, but only according to God's will seeing as they never belonged to us in the first place. As faithful stewards, as disciples, we are given a responsibility over things like my money and my soul and my body and my speech and my hands and my feet and my time and my talents and my material goods. But the distinction right here, this is the distinction that is different and it makes all the difference. Everything we are, everything we have, is first a gift from God. All that stuff I mentioned, my money, my possessions, my talent, my time, all that, they're not mine. They belong to God. That parable I mentioned about the guy who has this big farmhouse and he's got so much stuff he's got to tear it down and build an even bigger one, the one Jesus uses to say, hey, don't be like that guy. There's something in the story that we miss. When the, when the 
farm owner, when the farmer is talking, he says, I have no place to store my harvest. I'll tear down my barns. I'm going to build more for me because that's where I'm going to store all of my grain and all of my stuff. The farmer in Jesus' parable foolishly believes that he is solely responsible for his own goods, which I mentioned last week is bonkers. No one is self-made, period. All of us are products of gifts that people have given to us, whether it's something our parents gave to us or someone in the church gave to us or a teacher gave to us. We are all results of things that have been given. No one makes their own way through this life. God gives and gives and gives and gives. We're just so steeped in a world that constantly tells us that you have to be the master of your own destiny, that you have to pull yourself up by your bootstrap, that we forget that God is the one who gave us boots in the first place. But lest we revert back to this message that we already heard about last week about gaining all we can, the question remains, what are we supposed to do with all we've gained? In the book of Proverbs, as confounding and frustrating as it may be, it has a good and difficult word for us. One that I made Bob read three times. Riches gotten quickly will dwindle, but those who acquire them gradually become wealthy. That is just another way of saying we are, to, we are wise if we manage our finances with a far-sighted view. Which, again, is way easier to say than it is to do. It means that we are called to make decisions now about the way we use our money now that will provide for us in the future. And for many of us, this is next to impossible. It is impossible because we live in the shadow of the culture of now. Those in the past, they might have understood the value in delaying gratification and saving now for later. But we, all of us here, have been conditioned to believe that we can and need to have everything we want right now. And we've lost the ability to even discern the difference between what we need and what we want. You know, it was like 10 years ago that the American economy, often touted as the greatest in the world, it nearly collapsed because people were told, hey, you can't afford this house now, but we're going to pretend like you can Here, let's give you a mortgage that you can't afford for a house that you're going to default on. Our entire economy almost collapsed because we kept telling people, don't worry about the future, live right now. $9,000 as the average credit card debt for an American citizen. That is a direct result of believing that we deserve and should get to have whatever we want right now. Even student loans. Student loans are being offered right now to people to finance a version of the future, a future they cannot yet see, and yet every year we are pumping out more and more young people with college degrees and insurmountable debt for a job market that doesn't exist. Did you know student loan debt is the highest amount of debt in the country? It's not medical debt. It's not credit card debt. It's not our mortgages. The highest amount of debt in this country is for student loans. Saving now for later goes against everything we experience. Because we're told again and again, take care of it now, take care of it now, take care of it now. We don't ever think about a day in the future. It is difficult for us to save now for later, but it can be done. You know, these experts... They'll tout out all these different programs and maxims and even proverbs that can help people like us start to think about saving for the long game. There's this great expression that we've got to live by the 80-10-10 rule. You have to spend 80% of your money, you have to save 10% of your money, and you have to give away 10% of your money. The 80-10-10 rule, it's simple, it's clear. If you make $1,000 a month, 
You're supposed to live off of $800, you're supposed to save $100, and you're supposed to give away $100. It helps sort of make it a little bit easier, a little more manageable to think about what it means to live, to spend some money, to save some money, and to give some money away. But it can feel impossible. It can feel impossible because most of us, we are up to our necks in a culture that is constantly encouraging us to live beyond our income. You know, what keeps a lot of us from saving is not the high cost of living, but the cost of high living. There's just a lot of stuff we don't need that we think we need. There is an Apple store right over here at Stonebridge, and it is always packed with people. And I am a card-carrying member of the Apple family. I've got an iPhone. I've got a MacBook Pro up in my office. I am not immune to these things, but I know that I don't need them. But I feel like I do. I know none of you know what that's like, but there are things in my life I feel like I need them, but I know somehow that I don't. But we keep shelling out money for things that we can't afford. Some of us save up money, some of us use a credit card, and then lo and behold, we're $9,000 in debt, and we start doing the minimum payments, and we don't pay it for 200 years. The things that we save, what we do with our money, it's not just, it's not just about us. It's a witness that we're not saving just for ourselves, but we're saving for people who are going to be here after we're gone. You know, it's good for us to ask a question every once in a while, a question we never do. Who's going to get all my stuff when I'm dead? What kind of impact will what I've done now have on people in the future? What can I invest in now that will live long after me? I mean, when was the last time you looked at your stuff in your house or your apartment and you thought, hmm, who's going to get all this when I'm not here anymore? We don't think about that stuff. Instead, we live with this paradoxical view where we can only think about now, we can only worry about now, and we don't think at all about what might happen in the future, and we certainly can't think at all about what will happen when we're not here. You know, all of this, everything I've said today, to me, it doesn't really feel like it has much to do with God. This doesn't, to me, really feel like a sermon. Certainly, I've told you all some things you should do, which can be sermonic, but this doesn't feel like a sermon. You know, thinking about the words that I wrote down and I've shared with you today, it feels like it would be better suited for an economic form or how to budget your money more than the corporate worship of the great I am. But saving, that's God's cup of tea. Think about God. You know, he desires to save us in a way that's different than the way we're supposed to save our money for the future. But those things are related to each other. God is all about the long game. God is in the business of saving. Think about the crucifixion. Think about the cross. Jesus wasn't waiting around, nailed up on the cross, waiting for instant faith and instant gratification before doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Think about the tomb. Jesus wasn't waiting in the tomb on Easter morning, waiting for the, the fidelity meter to reach the highest amount possible before he said, hey, guess what? I'm resurrected and you get to be too. No. God sees potential in God's creation with a frame of reference that most of us don't have. God believes in people as a long-term investment. You know, it takes a lifetime of showing up Sunday after Sunday to hear about grace before it really starts to stick. And God keeps saving us, even when we don't deserve it. I mean, God sees me. God knows I shouldn't be thinking about buying an Apple computer or buying an iPhone. And God says, you know what, Taylor? I'm going to pour a little more grace in your life anyway. God is in the business of saving God knows us deeply, better than we know ourselves, and God keeps pouring out the Holy Spirit on us. God makes a bunch of investments in all of us that no one in their right mind would put their money on, but God does it. 
God does this because God is beyond time. God can see our future, a future that we cannot. God saves because that's who God is. For us, tomorrow is never promised. That's part of the wisdom that comes with being a Christian. It's the recognition that even though the world tells us, oh, if you do this, you'll live forever, we know that that's not true. We know that tomorrow isn't going to be here. We know that we need to be grateful for the right here and the right now, and yet we worship a God who believes in seeing beyond what is right here and right now. We believe in a God who believes in saving. We believe in doing something even when we're not here anymore. We believe in a God who believes in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. God saves. And we should too. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we wouldn't be caught dead sharing our bank accounts with the people in the pews, and yet you know how much we have. You know how much debt we have. You know how much we've saved and how much we haven't saved, and yet you've said, hey, come anyway. I'm going to try to find some rest for you. I'm going to give you the sustenance of life that you really need. I'm going to give you my son, his body, his blood. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. I'm going to help you to see what it really means to gain all you can and save all you can and give all you can. Because I, the Lord your God, have already given you what you need. I have saved you. And I've given myself away for you. So Lord, as people who are mindful that we can never repay you for what you've done, we've gathered together with a whole bunch of people who know the same. And we are ready to be filled filled with your Son, filled with your Spirit, and filled with you, that we might be a people who know what it means to be saved so that we can save. And all God's people say, Amen. As people gather together, it's good for us to be here on this rainy morning, but even better for us to stand as we are able to share signs of Christ's peace. And if you want, ask someone how much credit card debt they have. (laughs) 